This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello, you are listening to Triple R and welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. I'm Stuart Richards. With me tonight are my regular co-hosts, Emma Westwood and Sally Christie. Hello, how are you? Hello, Stewie. How Hi. are you, Stewie? It's Stuart. That's my professional name. Stuart. Hello, Stuart. Should I go, good evening? Good evening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tonight we are also joined by Paul Anthony Nelson, a Melbourne-based filmmaker who, as half of the filmmaking team Cinema Viscera, has directed five short films and one feature, the micro-budget, monochrome, gal-powered, modern Melbourne comedy noir trench. It's uh, called trench. Hello. It seemed to get lost in that. Uh, I know. I love. <laughs> I, I'm. 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 I'm recalling Harrison Ford's quote about Star Wars and George Lucas's dialogue. Is you can write that shit, but you certainly can't say it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a bit like that. <laughs> well done. I am very happy to be here. Thank you we so, so much for having are me. Very pleased to have you here. And in another couple of weeks as well. Yes. We can't get rid of you. The first can't of many, get rid of you. So if I suck tonight, everybody, there's more. <laughs> there's more. Um, and you're also working on uh, a gothic horror film as I am. well. Do you next year? I am, yes. Uh, so we're currently, we just finished the uh, the latest draft uh, a couple of days ago and we're looking at shooting later in the year. Current working title is Inheritance, but we're sort of oh. working around that. But yeah, it's another micro-budget project, but it's kind of a, we're, we're, we're we're trying to make a, 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 a local $30,000 version of an A24 horror drama sort Ooh. of thing. So, that's oh, wow. sort of so inheritance, not for. hereditary. No. <laughs> it's very different. Believe it or not, hereditary <laughs> was, in, was actually a consideration and then oh, really? that damn thing came along. Yeah. <laughs> damn. Of all the titles to double up on. <laughs> so... <laughs> Sorry, we can't stop. See, I can't now. I've just got <laughs> Alyssa Edwards in my head. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> On tonight's show, we take a look back at Alfred Hitchcock's original 1934 film, The Man Who Knew Too Much, ahead of its screening at Lido Cinema, and Comedy Ideal Home, starring Paul Rudd and Steve Coogan as a couple who must unexpectedly take care of a child. But first, let's dance the foxtrot and look at some of your males' film, The Foxtrot. Affluent Tel Aviv-based couple Michael and Daphne Feldman, played by Lior Ashkenazi and Sarah Adler, are informed by Israeli military authorities that their son Jonathan has died in the line of duty. They are not told where or how Jonathan died, nor are they advised if his body has been recovered, which only increases the anger and grief felt by Michael. The father. The film also follows Jonathan's experiences during his military service as one of four soldiers working at a desolate checkpoint under rough conditions. The film won the Silver Lion Grand Jury Prize at the Venice International Film Festival. The film was also denounced by the Israel's uh, Ministry of Culture because of violence committed by Israeli Defence Forces in the film, with the Minister of Culture, Miri Regev, referring to the film as a slur, stating that it, uh, resulted, it was a result of self-flagellation and cooperation with the anti-Israel narrative, and that's a direct quote. Mowers responded by saying, if I criticise the place I live, I do it because I worry. I do it because I want to protect it. I do it from love. So, Sally, what are your thoughts? 
Uh, I really adored this movie. Because there were lots of reasons why I adored this film. Um, similar to Hereditary, the way that it focused on grief and that kind of very, very primal re- reaction to grief. And I think it kind of hit on a couple of personal spots for me just being in that situation where I have seen people's primal reactions to grief and I think that it, you know, replicated that really, really well. Um, another thing that I loved about Foxtrot, well, it was visually gorgeous, but I love that it showed how young these soldiers were. Yes. Um, and which is, you know, honest. You know, my dad is a Vietnam vet. He was over there. He did his service when he was 20 years old. And... They're really, really young boys and also that when something does happen and they are harming somebody else, that it's not like, you know, fuck you, I've gone and, you know, killed someone. It's horrific for them. It's Mm. a really difficult process. They do have national service in Israel Mm. as well, so they all have to serve in the the service. And I think that that was really important about this film was those young men's emotions to war and also the fact that they were stuck at a post where not a lot of action was happening. I think that it communicated what war is in real life a lot better than a lot of films that I've really seen, to be honest. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, this film I put on, I've put on my list with two question marks whether it should be on my top, of, uh, top film list of the year. Wow. Yeah, I know. Um, it's still got the question marks there. <laughs> I will tell you that. That's a, that's a thing. About, but that's what I think is good about this film as well. It has this really interesting geometry about it, which is um, a geometry of structure and with a very clear three acts um, and a three-act narrative, which I, I enjoyed the fir- enjoyed. It's a strange word to say with this film, but I preferred the first and third acts as to the second compared to the second act. Um, I found the second act dragged a little bit, which was more looking at the the guy, the young, the youngsters in service, shall we say? But. Um, I also really enjoyed, um, like, the geometry, the visual geometry of it. There were, um, it was a very highly structured film, architectural film visually, uh, the way the lines worked in the apartment. I I particularly enjoy apartment porn in films anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> this was a great apartment. I wanted to live there. And it was stuck in the apartment. In the first act, it was stuck in the apartment and went away onto the into the field for the second and then it came back to that apartment in the, the, in the third. But um, I, I did... What struck me as really interesting was the way it um, brought humour in because it was a very doer film and then to bring humour into it was very clever. I think Mm. it was really important Um, and it also did it very well. It wasn't too heavy-handed. In fact, the the humour of the camel that's introduced is it's funny but then the camel plays another role in the film which is quite devastating. So And leading up to... I mean, the film leads up to Jonathan's death because um, we know he dies and it leads up to sort of... We're constantly asking sort of how does this act happen? Yeah. And I think sort of leading up to sort of the big final moment, uh, we're constantly asking sort of how did it happen? And for me, I think um, it was it self-harm. That's what I was mm. sort of thinking leading up to. So I think sort of the where it goes and I think it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, um, I thought the same thing actually. Um, the, the start of this film kind of threw me a bit 
because I... Uh, he's of course his previous film is Lebanon. I don't know if you've seen that. That's I haven't seen it. Fantastic. Is it good? It is. Yeah. So the film okay. is set entirely within a tank. And that was his f- first, first feature. Film. Yeah. Yeah. And that was God. That was like 2011 or something now. And uh, that was uh, another kind of you know Israeli-based anti-war allegory. Um, and it's sort of so he's he's on a theme here. This is clearly his kind of his metier. Um, but. Early on, like, it is so drenched in style um, to the point where when he goes into Jonathan's bedroom at the start, I'm thinking, that's a wonderfully art-directed bedroom. And the, <laughs> yes, and the, and the apartment was incredibly sparse and art-directed. And then it suddenly... Cl- I was like, oh, okay, fine. This is... We're in expressionistic territory here yeah. for the entire film. Like, this is, this is all how... This is what's going on in their heads. And, I mean, the approach to style in this film was almost Brian De Palma-esque at times. Even reminded me of Kubrick as well. Yeah. Those kind of high angles and all the straight lines and... and symmetry yes. and framed perfectly within mm. a window and, yeah. Um, but, you know, like, the, the, these aerial shots is this kind of in, in his apartment is this kind of, you know, walking these high crane shots and stuff. Um, so as... And I found the first half hour just almost unbearable. Did you? No, no, like, I mean in a good way. Oh, like, in a good way. Yeah, in a, okay, all right. When I say good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I found it anxiety-inducing. Um, yeah. yeah, it was really, really tough. And, again, that sort of, and the thing it keeps looking for um, throughout the film with Michael's character, the father, is that sort of, um, I guess, I don't know, toxic masculinity is kind of in the air at the moment in their heads and definitely seeing it here from his military service to the way he's been brought up to the way he's been conditioned as a soldier Mm. and the only way to react to grief and the way he treats the dog and, you know... Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because that turned me off him. Oh, absolutely. 100 percent as soon as... Yes, anyway. (laughs) You want to pull a trigger on a person, like that's the way to do it, have them harm an animal. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it... And so it sort of dealt with that as well. And then in terms of Anne Jonathan's character, who seems quite sweet and quite sort of, you know, and, and again, because in Israel, as you said, bring it back, that everybody has to do this mandatory service. And so what does this do to people? And, you know, we're, we're yeah, I, I thought it was really complex. Um, it was very kind of capital F filmy at times, but... In the end, I was I was really captivated by it, and I feel like there's certain scenes and images that will stay in my head for quite yeah, a long time. Yeah, the role of masculinity I think was really interesting in this film, and like you were saying with the father Michael, how there's even one point where I think another soldier says to him, "You're a man." It was something, uh, you know, to that effect, mm. you're a man, you can deal with this. And that he couldn't, you know, just express grief. There was, you know, I guess one point where he sort of almost broke down in a toilet, but that was private, away from everybody. You know, mm. nobody can see mm. this. And he contains it right away. And, you know, that I think that is something that is really ingrained with men, particularly that were so- are soldiers, that they can't express grief in, you know, in front of people. And, I mean, there's obviously... I don't want to spoil it, but there's sort of an event that happens at that checkpoint. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, the the soldiers that are working there don't talk to each other about it. They, mm. There's no communication. We don't even know their names. Yeah. Like in the credits, it's like the soldier that listens to music, the soldier that dances. That, mm. I mean, there's such mm. little emotional connection between these soldiers that they don't know how to actually kind of cope with this traumatic event and we can kind of see that in the father as well. And that mm. also, you know, all kinds of wars lead back to that thing with men not speaking about it, we, you, particularly the Vietnam War, mm. you know, that was kind of a thing that was hush-hush, you know, no people that were even in that war didn't talk 
about being in it. It's, yeah, it's very interesting the way it's sort of dealt with that. And also that if you've got a nation of people that have all been through military service mm-hmm. and none of them are talking about it probably, yeah. what does that do yeah, to you exactly. as a culture? Yeah. That's a really like good it. point. Yeah, I think um, the the being an Israeli film as well, that it really made a point of um, not playing up the religious aspect of mm. it. And, in fact, that family, I think he, in, Michael at one stage, the father says that they're not religious or they don't... The, the brother any, says that they're atheists. The, bro- yeah. the brother says they're atheists, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting angle to take because it immediately went, okay, we're not making this about um, Jewish issues or issues of faith or whatever the Jewish belief will be in terms of, um, you know, dealing with death. This is just about people. We'll just bring it right back. Mm. So that's probably part of the controversy in some ways as well because it is not a Jewish film. It's just a film about people yeah. and the sins of the father it's, you know mm. we're talking about that maleness but it is about the sins of the father and it's a cyclical film that geometry geometry that I was speaking about it's all very <coughs> neatly packed up and everything comes back to itself yeah, mm. yeah. Um, I want to go back to that dog because I mean so he's st- one of the first sort of moments of sort of where he expresses emotion at the start is when he kicks the dog as almost like a reflex. Mm. That's such a troubling way for us to identify with him because I mean you both immediately said that turned me off him mm. but then he's the lead character that we identify without throughout the film. I think that we're meant to be turned off him. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I never yeah. reconnected with him at one point <laughs> after that there was nothing after as soon as he kicked that dog I really done. I, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I still did though. Like I I mean there's a, a conversation between him and his wife, played by Sarah Adler, who's brilliant, uh, that you can really see that brokenness inside of him mm. when they're sort of having the kitchen around the cake towards the end. I thought he was a really... The cake. That the cake. Reminds, reminds me of the cake maker, doesn't it, with Sarah Adler as well, which we've also... also starring Sarah Adler. Also star, starring Sarah is, is Adler. Is that her side business? Does yeah, it must be. Make cakes? Making cakes. That's yeah. the thing she does. What did you think of that decision to not reveal that when we go to the cake and there's clearly something that's occurred that we're not aware of and all of a sudden you're sort of taking... I like that. I did too. You dug I that. It was very, yeah. very, very, very it was an interesting good. choice. I, I like the entire structure of the film. That what Emma was saying before are those really clear three acts, um, and that nothing was particularly clear within each of those three acts. I, I really enjoyed that. It kind of, even though it wasn't a film that was like keeping you on the edge of your seat, it still kept me guessing until the very, very end point. Mm. Yeah, there's very little exposition when each of these acts kind of start. So we're mm. constantly asking, like, what's happening? Where are they? What time is this mm. taking place in? And I even found that in the first opening act, the 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 way the that sort of house or the apartment is shot is so interesting because things mm. you will hear things off camera, or there'll be a, like a, as you were saying these high angle, sharp high angle shots where we're not given everything in the actual frame. There's a lot of stuff happening off camera so that my, we're constantly guessing. They're so conscious of the the art direction and the, the production design. I think there was one stage. There's something that's a, a geometric um, screen or something in the house. I think it was a screen. This is what. Because she puts Squid. salt or something on the table and she ends up making the shape of it on the table. Mm. So there's it's obviously so everything's 
there on purpose, the whole look of it. Um, there's nothing that's superfluous in this mm. film. So it's an interesting, having only watched it once, I would love to go and see it again, actually. I think it's something that you could get a lot from mm. from seeing uh, repeat times. Yeah. And that dance sequence is incredible. Yes, I know. I thought at one oh. point, does anyone remember Dennis Potter's lipstick on my collar with Ewan McGregor's first acting role? I know it. But with, I um, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> anyway, it's basically wartime and it's a musical and I thought, is this film going to go that way? Like <laughs> lipstick on my collar? I was like, fingers crossed. But it didn't. But it was still amazing. But that was an incredible yes. little sequence. Yes. And the decision to put that in there mm. right at the start of that second second act. Mm. What did you think of the second act though? I thought it dragged in bits. That's the only I thought it thing. needed to drag, though. That Did was you? my favourite act. Really? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yep. I didn't get bored at all. I think because it was so beautifully shot. Oh, it was divine. The, sh- yeah. the, the look of it was just divine. I actually got, uh, this is probably showing my nerdy side, I got Fallout vibes, the game Fallout, where <laughs> sure. it's just this, like, <laughs> this sort of de- desert with this sort of, all these sort of industrial uh, sort of setting and... <laughs> Yeah, I, which is probably I like, not... <laughs> I like that they were just kind of in this zone that just seems surrounded by darkness mm, and things would yeah. just appear. Like, these yeah. cars coming on this road, where the hell are they going? Where are mm. they coming from? Like, just yeah. in this road in the middle of nowhere. Was it was so mysterious of... and almost Lynchian at times. Was yeah. there a lot of water or something yeah. that yeah, there was dripping about? Yeah. And it was, yeah, and it just looks oh, so squalid. Mate, the <laughs> yeah. scene with the, the, the dressed-up couple that get out of the car. <gasps> she looked yes. like an opera singer or something. And yeah. just her, yeah. their looks at each other. I mean, that's one of the things that's going to stay with me about this movie. That was an like, incredible moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, each okay, of those... I've changed my mind. The second act is my favourite act. <laughs> <laughs> I've changed my mind. Each, but each of the cars that come along to the checkpoint, I mean, they're a film mm. within themselves. Yes. Mm, which mm. I really love. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. So, from one film about grief-stricken parents to another, Alfred Hitchcock's original The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934. Leslie Banks and Edna Best play Bob and Jill Lawrence, a British couple on holiday in Switzerland with their daughter, Betty. One evening, a new acquaintance of theirs, Louis Bernard, is fatally shot as Jill dances with him. In his final moments, he tells Jill where to find a note that is to be delivered to the British consul. She, in turn, tells Bob, who secures the note, which, it transpires, contains vital uh, indications concerning a planned assassination. The criminals involved in the shooting, led by Abbott, played by the iconically creepy Peter Law, kidnap Betty and threaten that she'll be killed if her parents tell anyone what they know. Unable to seek help from the police, the couple returned to England determined to find Betty themselves. The film was later developed with the same title but a separate plot and script featuring James Stewart and Doris Day as the parents. In the conversation with Francois Truffaut, Hitchcock said, let's make, let's say the first version is the work of a talented amateur and the second was made by a professional. So Emma, let's kick off with you. <laughs> what are your thoughts? This is the first time I've um, watched this film and um, I love this, what this, uh, the classic and Lido are both playing this um, Alfred Hitchcock season uh, early films at the moment. This one's on this Sunday, isn't it? Yes, I think first. it is the first. Yeah. And then I believe they're going on to do even um, more 
recent, I say with quotation marks, uh, Alfred Hitchcock films um, as part of a second season. But um, I'm very familiar with the 1956 film, so it was interesting to see this, to kind of rewind and and do a comparison between the two. And there are um, a number of elements that are the same, although they kind of play with the genders a little bit in Mm. it. And also this film has a remarkably long shootout session at the end. <laughs> for, for a short fi- shortish film, it only goes for an hour fifteen minutes. Um, it is a very very long scene, whereas it, it ends with a symbol crash in the mm. in the um, uh, in the remake, which is the kind of the big thing that they play up to. But I really love Peter Laurie, and this is his first English language film, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? He yes. left the script phonetically because he was still learning English. Wow. How good is that? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did Udo Kier do that for? Flesh of Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. He's been doing that I forever, hasn't he? <laughs> you just had to get an Udo mention. I did. Like I did. If I can get Udo in you. there, I will. Let's, <laughs> find, let's get another. If we're talking about one German, let's get another yeah. in there. You know, so. Bless them. But he is. It's um, just amazingly creepy. Peter Lorre has this particular look that's just this iconic look that, yeah. um, you know, it, I don't. He's just an. He is an icon himself. He's a caricature. When of he comes on screen, and my immediate thought was, I've seen that character in The Simpsons. <laughs> yes, except well, yeah. And Ren and Stimpy. It, Ren and Stimpy. Well, I have a bit of gossip for you. Oh, trivia. Let's not say this gossip. Is, this is very great. This is from my husband. He sent it through just a few moments ago. My fave bit of Peter Laurie trivia: the voice of Ren from Ren and Stimpy is the creator John Kay doing, by his own admission, a really bad Peter Laurie impression. So there you go. Wow. Yep. Yep. Thanks, Steve. Peter Peter Laurie <laughs> Thanks, is Blake. with us today. Really, he's with us today. But um, <laughs> I think this film, I think what Hitchcock said is probably the truth. You know, this was not him at his um, at at his best. But when I say that, I mean Hitchcock's made so much, and he had so much time. All these films to really hone his craft until he hit what was probably the mid career stride. That was, you know, his perfect point. Yeah, I definitely think this isn't Hitchcock's finest moment, but it was one of his very, very early films. Do we know which? Uh, it is film number 18. Yeah. Well, <laughs> number <laughs> 18. That's more than most people. Here's the thing. Yeah, he made 54. It was at kind of at the end of his first 10 years. Yeah. As a wow. filmmaker. Because there are things that we, you know, there's obviously the things that we, we love about Hitchcock that makes him an auteur, but I, I one thing that I really loved about this film that we can go, oh, okay, that's Hitchcock and he's building on this thing is the way that he creates suspense in that scene where Edna Best has gone to the symphony. Mm. And we know in classic, as Hitchcock does, he's told us what's going to happen. Mm. So he's building suspense. We know someone's going to get shot. And I thought that was a really kind of beautiful indication of how his films sort of move from here on in and how he's created that as an auteur. From, that was kind of the only thing that I really sort of stood out as being Hitchcock in this film for me. 
Um, but nevertheless, it was still fun. It was it was a good fun film, especially the bit where they were all throwing chairs at each yes. other. It was epic. <laughs> and what about the tabernacle of the sun? Like I this love that. <laughs> that was super creepy as well. That scene, that hypnotism mm, scene, was woman. super creepy. Yeah, 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 she was great. So I think he, there was it was a play of mood, and also um, Paul, you might be able to, be able to clarify on this, but it was sort of the first that he really moved into the suspense, the yeah. line of suspense, yeah, and or international intrigue. Yeah. This idea of um, playing pre James Bond international intrigue, you know. There yeah. are a lot of themes that started with this film. Like beforehand, he dabbled in things like the lodger and blackmail, and he'd done some suspense. But from here on in, this was kind of where he just because he'd been pitching suspense films to British international for years and kept getting. Turn, um, turned down, and this was this was a film he'd pitched to them, and his old sort of producing partner um, came to him, and basically he was set up at Gourmont and had this story, and he said, "Hey, we can, I can get this for you if we buy this, I, we can make it at my studio." And Hitchcock's great, let's do that. And so all of a sudden we've got you know the um, the ordinary people shoved in extraordinary situations. We've got the international intrigue. We've got the charming villain. We've got the you know the blonde. Like all so much and and the film leaning on suspense. Like I mean that that assassination scene is played almost verbatim mm. in the fifty six version. Yeah, mm. it is actually. I think it's yeah. a bit longer. Is it in, in the, the fifty six version? The fifty six version. It I is. think it's a little longer. But it's pretty much the yeah. same thing. Yeah, just longer. But it has some. Um, I think the Doris Day element in the fifty six version drags it out more because we have her singing uh, Kesara Sarah. Yeah. As mm. that's all unfolding, so they use her singing that in a rather taut fashion as well mm. to to bring you know that tight, that long bow of suspense across the whole thing. Yeah. You know? But in the yeah. fifty six version, in the actual when the symphony is playing, um, the can the cantata, I think it's called. I the cantata, yeah. Uh, and it sort of ends with the symbol. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more shots of Doris Day becoming more and more melodramatic and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because there's that real that question, should I sort of save this man's life? and possibly kill my daughter or should I just keep quiet and not do anything so my daughter remains safe? Mm. And that, I guess, that sort of question I think is really played out and stretched out a lot more in the 56 version, I, I do, think. I do think it's a shame that in the element that I I, I feel that was lost from the the 34 version, this version of the film was the, the role that the mother played in the end, which we wouldn't yes. want to, I don't want to say because, you know, we want people to, to experience that, go and see this and experience that. But it was such a an interesting role for her to, as a mother and as a woman at mm. that time to mm. play. And I thought that was really exciting. Yeah. She was a really ballsy character, that Edna Best character. Yeah. yeah. I think it's still kind of there, though, in the, the remake. Obviously trying to kind of talk around it so we don't spoil it. Yeah, but not she, quite as overt, though. It's not. She still uses yeah. a particular talent of hers that's set up early in the film. Yes. yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's very nice, Stewie. Oh, you did good. that in a in a nice way, not revealing anything there. I <laughs> like you. that. Does anyone know what Hitchcock's intentions were with remaking this film? 
I mean, I don't. To do it, I do it better. I think he thought that yeah. it was um, he had a good film there, that it had um, you know had good bones, but he hadn't done it justice. It's I, very interesting yeah. when I think directors mm. do that. Like Michael Haneke did that with Funny Games, and yes. it's kind of you know, what are you hoping to achieve from doing this? I, I think mm. I don't know. I have a theory about the Fifty Six version. Okay, um, I don't know. How Let's much hear I, it. All right, Paul. real quick. So, okay, so Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant were both his avatars. Like they were people he worked with multiple times, loved working with them, but they were avatars for certain kinds of Hitchcock's two sides. Cary Grant is who Hitchcock wanted to be. Yeah. <laughs> the suave, beautiful, witty, you know. Jimmy Stewart is who Hitchcock felt he was. He was mm. the pervy guy who there. You know, he's the troubled detective <laughs> who's trying to change the woman's identity. He's the guy who's perving out the windows and witnesses a murder. Yeah. But it's also the everyman who's a voyeur, the everyman mm. who's changing identities, the everyman. And in Man Who Knew Too Much, um, Hitchcock and his wife Alma were um, like habitual travellers. They loved to travel and, and see new countries and new things and they had one daughter and that was it. And they And it's almost like their travels... And going to make films were like their adventures. Mm. And if you look at their sort of light and everything, and uh, the man who knew too much kind of almost lines up as this is an idealised version of his and Alma's life together. It's the closest thing to a love letter for Alma that he's ever written. Actually, mm. she looks like Alma too. If you look at her, she's the closest that I've seen of mm. any character that he's had that actually does look. She does look like Alma. Mm. Mm. And I think that's maybe why he. One of the reasons whether subconsciously or consciously, yeah. um, he made the 56 version. But, um, yeah, I I think the 56 version misses a little L- Laurie. I yeah, love yeah. that I We can always do with more Peter Laurie. Absolutely. <laughs> but he was so, so charming and creepy. Yeah. I mean, that's not, there's no creepiness to the villains. No. In the, in the remake? No, no, not at, at all. all. They're very, in fact, they kind of make them that they're, they're just, they blend into yeah. the crowd. That's the, the except whole for the thing. weird guy that played the vampire in Salem's Lot, um, <laughs> who was shooting Reginald. Actually, that's a good point. Yeah, he's the yeah, only one yeah. I remember from the from the remake. remake. Like I don't remember any of the. Isn't villains. that interesting? But you remember Peter Laurie? Yeah. Yes. Don't yeah. do we ever? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a with in the first in the the 1934 version. I think what he does with sound is really interesting because this is his first suspense film, and this is. A really early attempt of using sound to create suspense. I found the sound really difficult. Did you? Did yeah. you? What about the car horns? Yeah, Constantly. I found, I found, it, I found it really overbearing. Going the whole way through this film. I found that it drowned out the dialogue a lot for me right. in, yeah, this one. Really? Yep. Okay. Mm. That's interesting. I almost want to watch, I almost want to ask what DVD you watched or screener or... The one, the one that Emma. Don't <laughs> 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 palm it off on me. I'm blaming Emma for this. It was the lovely, the one that the lovely people at uh, the Classic and Lido shared with us. Right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Avenue One or uh, Payless? No. Because um, I watched the Mad Men one. I didn't. I, I I actually found the sound quite good, and I don't yeah. know whether it's different versions and different... Yeah. I'm sure oh, the Criterion yeah. is amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. It does have an amazing cover, I must say. It does. Peter Laurie's head. Yes. So <laughs> it's great. Is it like bright green or something? Yeah. yeah. Yes. But there's the ticking, there's the Laurie's watch, and then there's the it's the sound of the dentist. And, mm. and London. London looks great, you yeah. know. London looks foggy. Mm. Do we think that our... <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors was inspired yes. by that dentist scene. Because when I was 
watching it, all I could the think dentist. about was Steve Martin getting high in Little Shop Horrors. It, it, that's a really good point, though, Sally, yeah. because yeah. The, the little that I think that um, dentist still has this uh, plays out as something icky and awful yeah. for people, but not as much as at that time. Mm. At that time. The dentist was, you know, akin to going to a torturer. Well, and the shot of the, the dental tools, it was like, oh, horrific. <laughs> and the gas. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> the constant fight with the gas. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we do need to move on now. We could talk about this all night. Three. Triple. <sighs> so finally tonight we are taking a look at Andrew Fleming's ideal home. When his grandson shows up at a high-class dinner party one evening, Erasmus Dickie Brumble, played by Steve Coogan, and his filmmaking partner Paul, R- uh, Paul played by Paul Rudd, uh, with added scruff, uh, reluctantly takes him in. While Coogan plays a demanding celebrity, Rudd plays the rational, quieter other half. Both have a fondness for cowboy hats and boots, and the bickering couple face many challenges as they try to adapt to this new addition to their extravagant home. The boy won't cooperate. He will only eat Taco Bell, and they don't even know his name. Written and directed by Andrew Fleming, this dramedy explores what makes a family. The film also has a few particularly great cameos uh, with Alison Pill, Kate Walsh and Drew Drogi. So, Paul, did this charm the arseless chaps off? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting to say that. <laughs> you picked my brand too because I totally wear arseless chaps around the house. Um, God, I wish I liked this movie more. Um, I, 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 You know, like, again, it's there's some beautiful stuff in it. I think... Um, I liked Paul Rudd a lot more than I liked Steve Coogan in this, and I'm usually I'm usually right in the bag with Coogan. Like I usually love his stuff, but I found it, there was a lot of mugging going on. Um, it's quite broad at times, which kind of you know is not normally my jam. Um, but you know, I loved. I, I think you know the the most poignant part of the film is the end credits. Um, yeah. The yeah. Um, but um, I yeah no I liked I, I liked Paul Rudd a lot. Um, um, it's it's sort of the the, the the way the relationship plays itself out. I mean, what is that name? Era- Erasmus Dicky R- Bumble or whatever. Erasmus Dicky Brumble. Brumble, thank Rolls you. Rolls off the tongue. I mean, this is a film where assigned to a gallery saying a douchebag um, gallery is, you know, the height of humour <laughs> in this movie. I don't, know if, you, I don't know if you noticed that. There was a, t- a good T-shirt, though. Yeah, I shaved my balls for this. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the funny moments. I, all, I really also like their their porn collection with the play on movie names because it's one of my favourite things in the world. I remember my video store as a kid having Edward Penis Fingers. Yes. <laughs> penis, penis hands. hands. Penis hands, yeah, that was it. I, and you know what? I worked in a video shop and we had that. So did. I, and I, and the, the, thing is, the thing is, though, I looked at it and I pronounced it Edward Penishens. Penishens. Right. <laughs> so I remember being Jane a small Austen child and always knowing that was Edward Penishens. <laughs> Shall we go to the, uh, the, 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 the mansion of Edward Penishens? Um... The Flint Bones was another one that the was Flint in Bones, my video e. store. The Extra Testicle. <laughs> oh, we could go on. Back to the film. I did like that one of them was, was a play on Brokeback Mountain. Like, it was Bareback, Bareback Mountain. Mountain. I was yeah. like, but isn't the movie... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is quite a good joke. All right, we're, we're making this... I feel that we're making this sound so much funnier than it was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt... I find Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd 
incredibly funny and it didn't it wasn't it didn't add up to the sum of its parts let's just say and I tried to I really thought this through and I'm trying to work out why I think partly it was I think actually we can blame Andrew Fleming here yeah we can yeah for the direction and the writing Mm. I think that there was some um poor just purple patches in the writing and also I just think that the casting of the child was incorrect shall I say he didn't there was something about him that he was just obnoxious. I didn't ever see the change where that there turn. was a rapport that occurred. That yeah. It just wasn't there. So it never got to the dramedy stage. It just got to the sort of flat comedy for me. Um, I would agree. I'm also a big fan of Steve Coogan and I'm very fond of Paul Rudd as well. Uh, I, I do like that they gave Paul Rudd a shitty dancing scene in this that he has pretty much in every film that he has ever been in. So that was good. Now, look, I, I did enjoy watching it. It was certainly nothing profound whatsoever, but it was a nice film. Oh. Um, and I also feel, to give it credit, that... They didn't camp it up and go over the top with them being sort of, you know, gay stereotypes. But then I do also feel that there were some elements of their relationship that did feed into that, mm. um, being, you know, a bickering gay couple and all, you know, that kind of thing. And I, you know, yeah. what else has Andrew Fleming done? The Craft? And the Threesome. Craft. He did The Craft. Yeah, yes. he directed The Craft. Wow. Um, also. Threesome. Threesome, yes, Bad Dreams. That has always oh, stuck God. in my head from working yeah, in a video store yes. in the 90s, the cover of that. But, yeah, he directed The Craft. Well, I think, like, polit- politically when we have a gay couple kind of presenting themselves as ideal parents, usually they are really normal and sort of dull and vanilla. And here we have this couple, but particularly the Steve Coogan character who is eccentric, um, mm. to put it lightly. And I, I kind of like the message behind the film, particularly when the end credits come up, that you can be bonkers. Because um, <laughs> most parents are. Yeah. <laughs> you can be completely nuts, but also you can still ha- have an ideal home for a kid. So I do like that that message behind the film. Mm. Um, it's a sort of an easy, soft comedy. It's not challenging in any way. Mm. Um, I think this will be really great on Netflix, I think, to yeah. sort of... I- I have to be honest though. If I heard the word fucking words Taco Bell one more time, I yeah, know. it did feel like, like a big the ad speed. for Taco Bell, didn't yeah, it? That drove really me up. crazy. That was quite obvious. I also think it's really <laughs> difficult to have um, sort of two sort of really big A name uh, sort of open, you know, straight actors playing gay and it not be offensive. Do yeah, gay for pay. Gay what for do you pay. think? Mm. Yeah, I, think I was wondering about. Oh, what I think about. it's. I think it's fine. I think um, being. Uh, I think it's completely different when you have a cisgender performer playing a trans performer. I think that's not okay at all. Um, but I think it's okay. I think in terms of sexual identity, I think that's fine because it's all about the character relationships and. And, and they are actors, and the and idea is actors. actors should be able to play yeah. anything. Really. I honestly felt yeah. that they did a really good job of yeah. that. Um, if it wasn't it for could have Steve been awful. Coogan and Paul Rudd, this movie would have been absolutely shocking. Yeah. Emma. yeah. I saw a piece of trivia somewhere that was, maybe it was even on the great source of IMDb, that said <laughs> that, yeah, it is, many of the straight characters are played by openly gay character ah. actors. I, yeah, I, I read that as well. Yeah. And I was trying to find out who, because I was looking at the cast list of all of the, the prominent... And you couldn't see it and there? I couldn't see anyone. Well, maybe that's... 
complete I mean, bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> damn you, user-generated content. Um, I mean, there's Drew Drogi at one of the dinner parties and he's a LA gay comedian, but that was the only one yeah. I recognised. And, yeah. and I don't think any of us mentioned, we actually do get um, Paul Rudd and um, and Steve Coogan going bareback on each other. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty great. Which is yeah. great. <laughs> um, props to that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. Okay. Uh, Ideal Home is playing in limited release now. Tonight we also reviewed 1934, uh, the 1934 film The Man Who Knew Too Much ahead of its screening at Lido Cinema and Foxtrot, which is also in limited release. You've been listening to Emma Westwood, Sally Christie, Paul Anthony Nelson. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. It's been We'll fun. see you again soon. And myself, Stuart Richards. Thank you to Faith Everard, who edits the podcast version of this show, and to Carl Chapman on the decks tonight. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.